On the Empire Podcast this week, our guest is something of a gimme as Carrie Mulligan drops by to talk far from a madding crowd. Gimme, Mulligan, golf, joke. So anyway, uh, we also have the usual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast that's definitely above par. Um, Okay, strictly speaking, above par is a bad thing. Under par is where you want to be. Um, But under par sounds like below par, which is also a bad thing. It's all What you need right now, Chris, is an eagle. To carry you away. A giant eagle to carry me away. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Golf Podcast. This week, my two colleagues of such lethal cunning are our art house guru, a man whose favorite golf movie is the underrated Will Smith movie, La Legende des Bagafants. Is this true? Phil Desemlian. No. No. I'm glad you, you are currently wearing a Werner Herzog t shirt. I am wearing a Werner Herzog t shirt. You bought in the Werner Herzog club shop. <laughs> <laughs> Alongside his range of sportswear, <laughs> an SUV vehicle. How good would a Werner Herzog range of sportswear be? It would be. It would be, it would be very good. It would, Chris. It would be. Oh wait, Phil, come on! Don't what get the impressions. That yet. wasn't Werner Herzog. Oh, okay. Don't, was it? Was no, it just, I don't know. That was just a generic kind of. You golden larynx sex yeah, god, you. Um, all right. Okay, let's leave that for later on. Oh, and leave that bit as well, Phil. You're spoiling all the questions. Stop spoiling all the questions, and let me introduce the other colleague of. Lethal Cunning, who is, of course, our geek queen, a lady who agrees with Mark Twain that a round of golf is a good walk spoiled. Yes. So what would you call running a marathon, Helen O'Hara, which you did at the weekend, you ruddy maniac? Yeah, all in all, I might have been better with the golf um, because it's a really long way. I I don't know if anyone (laughs) realizes this, but 26.2 miles, it's it's really far. I think Mark Twain would have described it as a good distance car journey spoiled <laughs> yeah i think and he would have been right if i'm honest no it was it was great uh the london marathon heartily recommend it the atmosphere is incredible i would say though i didn't learn something movie relevant during this during this run mm-hmm. and that is that warner brothers may have a little bit of work to do ahead okay. of the wonder woman standalone movie because as you know i was dressed as wonder woman yes. and a lot of people shouted at me Go Superwoman. (laughs) Well, okay. So there's a little bit of name recognition that isn't there yet. Did you stop and correct them? I was I was very tempted, especially in the latter stages of the race, where I would have stopped for anything. Uh, But no, I was I I, I took it in the spirit in which it was intended and and waved my thanks and ran on. See, Superwoman's not even a thing. I know. So but they don't. Double education required. Did you see? (laughs) Yeah, so it would have taken a really long time if I'd stopped. You know. Did you see any James Bonds? Uh, I did run past a man wearing a suit at one point, but I'm not actually sure if he was Bond. Any Peter Lorries? Uh, uh, a Big Ben. Is that any good? No. A Big uh, Ben. A Big Ben. I saw uh, a Flash who was, who was, God bless him, even slower than me. So that answers the question of who's faster, Wonder Woman or Flash. <laughs> it, it's a, no one's ever asked that question. <laughs> I think um, the answer is fairly obvious. I, I ran with a Superman for a while. We tried to find a Batman, but we couldn't. Right. Okay. Um, uh, I saw quite a lot of Spider-Mans, but very few other Marvel figures. Yes. And I ran past a guy dressed as Jesus who was wearing only a loincloth and carrying an actual cross and had taken the whole, you know, self-harm thing a bit too literally because he was literally bleeding down his back. It was quite painful looking just to watch. What? I can't imagine what state he was in by the end of the course. There was also a dinosaur going for a world record, like a really convincing lifelike dinosaur. Everybody run the dinosaur. Well, it, it did make people run because it kind of looked like a, a mini T-Rex. Um, sort of a little bit bigger than in Jurassic Park 2, uh, two The Lost World. Mm-hmm. A little bit bigger than that, but but not much. 
What? Um, it was really realistic. I'm not kidding. I overtook it at the one kilometre mark, though, so I think it must have taken quite a long time to that finish the race. That was a mistake, Helen, because as we all know, the T-Rex's vision is based on movement. So by running past it, you actually probably became <laughs> its next target. Yes, I did. But luckily, it was really slow, so that was okay. <laughs> must run faster. Must, must. Um, is a Wikia wow. bear. So I'm, I'm going to ask, uh, I don't know whether you're willing to share or not, but what, what time did you do? Um, I did uh, a, 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 a fine by my standards, but mm-hmm. s- slow by a fit person's standards, uh, 5.21. 5.21? Mm-hmm. That's good. It's it's good for my standards. That's all I'm saying. So right. I, I make no claims. I know that a cool person should be run by the four-hour mark or, or under. But, yeah. you know, marathon number one, maybe it'll get faster. So is there going to be a marathon number two? Uh, we'll see. So what you're saying is we should all sign up for next year's London Marathon and yes. do a pod as we're running <gasps> around. That would be amazing. Because quite frankly, if you're, you should be running at, at a pace for marathons that you're able to speak at. So it would be good to make sure we're on the right pace if we can pod as we you go. Imagine that on the Empire Podcast this week. <laughs> Shooting paints, left arm. Is that good? I don't know. <laughs> and there goes the starting gun. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even started yet, Chris. Get up off the ground. Oh, he's dead. He's dead, and that means we'll never be able to get the questions. No, you guys would carry on, wouldn't you? Yeah. You would carry on. I'm not sure. We'd leave you for dead. <laughs> Just carry on. I thought you meant... Oh, sorry. Meant in tribute, in, in to, tribute me. to you. Yeah, sure. So anyway. here are some questions that people have been sending in. Uh, this is from at Jesus. <laughs> Jesus Almighty, underscore. Jesus underscore Almighty. And the... <laughs> Just chose as one of random guys. <laughs> Nothing to do with me. After Chris's amazing dinosaur impression, oh god! In a recent Empire podcast, I have to ask: What other weird slash awesome ones can you all do? Now, I'm not doing any impressions at this point. Hmm? Okay. Oh dear. Because this, I've I've mm. thinking about this in a way over to the pod. Okay. Today. I've worked with you for too bloody long now, Helen, uh, and. I have never heard you in all the years we've known each other do an impression. Is that because, do you think, I'm not very good at doing impressions? Or maybe you're hiding your light under a bushel. <laughs> when have I ever hidden my light under a bushel? <laughs> <laughs> I, I genuinely, like, I don't... I don't you don't do any. them? No, not really. I've done, I've, done, I've done, like, lines from Arnie, but it's more an impression of your impression than an impression of and My impression Arnie. of Arnie is an impression of someone else's impression of well, Arnie. Well, so. so it's a beautiful line of things. Okay. okay. All right. Let's do it now. I so, really of, want to hear you do an impression of someone. <laughs> it's sort of, oh God. Uh, get to the chopper. Come on, do it. Kill me. Kill me now. <laughs> That's, That's all I got. That's the best Dudley Moore I've ever heard. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, I leave the impressions to you guys. You, you have enough going on. All there. right. Can okay. you do an impression of Chris doing an impression of Peter Laurie? <laughs> no, uh, but I can. Have a go. Just no, say because, Helen. No, no. Just say no, Helen. don't stop it. It's bad if enough, Phil does, does it. Peter Laurie, does it weird you out? Uh, uh, that wasn't as bad as yours, but it's still bad. And I'm going to have to take off my headphones in a minute if you insist on doing it. I'm, not, can... I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. My brother's very, very good at impressions. He's got a good ear for them. <laughs> at least, he, I think he is. I'm not entirely sure so, who he's doing often, but I enjoy them. I really wish Nick were here for this bit because Nick has uh, an incredible ear. As you're he, absolutely right, he, he nails the impression. If the impression is Paul Giamatti. Mm. Uh, <laughs> because that's who everyone he does ends up sounding like. Paul Giamatti. Richard Nixon, Paul Giamatti. Uh, Ian Morgan Freeman, Paul Giamatti. Melissa you know, McCarthy. Paul Giamatti, Nick Cage. It's, it's all very weird, but uh, yeah, he's got an incredible, he's got an incredible ear. It's just not attached to his head. 
It does. Well, like one of those mutant lab mouses <laughs> stuck to his back. It's like a Bluetooth ear. It's, it's uh, well, you know, yeah. meters away from the rest of his face. He, I was weaned on his Christopher Walken impression. Oh. Yeah, which also sounds a bit like poor Jim. It's, it's an odd thing but, to be weaned on. Most people go for food. but I, mean. I know. I was malnourished. <laughs> I'll be honest. Apart from when he did his chicken. What do you do, Phil? Oh, check it. I'll take it. Um, well, I do Nick's Christopher Walken. I don't do any. I'm terrible at impressions. As anyone that's heard me try one on this podcast will I've got, testify. I've got a feeling Michael I've... Caine, I've tried and failed with. Everyone does a Michael Caine. Everyone do, yeah. Okay, Helen, we're going to do your Michael Caine. Oh, God. Yeah. Phil, hit Michael me with, Caine. Michael um, <clears throat> My other problem is like, I always misquote the films as <laughs> well. So it's a double whammy. A Doesn't bad matter. impression. All right. Just... She was only 27 years old. <laughs> uh, he didn't say this, but all right. Uh, wait, there's a bit in the Eagles Landed where he goes all Cockney. Okay, and he says something like, um, <clears throat> "You remind me of something I picked up on the sole of my shoe on a hot day. Very unpleasant on a hot day." And I don't even know that's not any of the words from the line, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good bit at the beginning of the movie. There's all obviously the classic Zulu ones, mm -hmm. okay. um, Zulus. <laughs> Great, oh, over amazing. There. Wow. There's Zulu's coming over here. Wow. Yeah. No, as I say, I'm not good at impressions at all. I think I've chosen the, the wrong week to ask this question. <laughs> Sorry, Jesus Almighty. Helen, all right, okay, what? before we move on, your, Mar uh, your, Michael Mar Caine. your Mark Twain impression. My Mark your Michael, Twain impression. Your Michael Caine impression. Um, I, I genuinely, like, that involves an accent as well, which I definitely can't do. Oh, come now. Come on, have My a go. Come now, O'Hara. No, I genuinely, I can't do it. Michael Kane. No, I can't do it. Kane? Kane? Kane. I can't even... Kane? What's... Michael bloody Kane. Michael bloody Kane. No, I can't do it. Right. Michael Kane. The secret is to do that. Mm. Just what? do... No, just do the impression of Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon. That's what you do. That's all you do. And then you go down lower. Master Bruce. But Rob Brydon does it. That's, that's all you do. You just impersonate yeah. other people's impressions of famous people. That's all you do. Helen um, and I can both do a good Buster Keaton in the general, can't we? Go on, yeah. do it right now. That's fucking amazing. That was spot on. Mm -hmm. Destructive, yep. but really, really good. We don't have a pod booth anymore, but that was really, really good. Apologies for the swears. I will do one quick thing. Okay. One quick thing. This is Sean Connery, okay? Okay. Accessing the internet via dial-up. <laughs> okay? Okay. I'll say it again. Sean Connery... Accessing the internet via dial-up. Splendid. Okay. Next that was the best you have ever done. Like, ever. That is genuinely the funniest thing I've ever heard from you. That's very good. Next week, Sean Connery riding a lawnmower. <laughs> You've been working on that since your Y2K project. It's technologically about 10 years out of date, but I liked it. I'm going to the fringe with that one. All right, let's move on. Next question is from at Toke Myers, who says, In Avengers Age of Ultron, uh, no character has a standout theme tune. That's not true. That's not true. Uh, Iron Man's theme is prevalent, as is Thor's theme, which I don't know what it is, but I was told by the composer that Thor's theme is, all, is, is studded all the way through the movie. I don't know. Thor's theme sound likes. I guess his, like. at least his music gets a look in. Oh, Precisely. snap. Boom. Uh, what's the best character theme in any film? Says Toke Myers. Toke Myers. Mm. So is it cheating to say the likes of Superman, Indiana Jones, Bond? No. 
then I would like to answer. <laughs> okay. Helen, in the voice of Michael Caine, answer. Oh, no. no yeah. uh, Superman, Indiana Jones and Bond. Uh, but Indiana Jones probably edges it because he actually has two themes. So um, they couldn't decide on one, so they kind of went with both. So, Indy. Mm. Okay. Okay. That's pretty good. Phil, I know you've made I lots guess. of notes in this one. And you have... You have Phil has no, it's just a, shopping an list, audio... Presentation to make. Oh, I do. Yeah, yeah, Hang he on. does. Yeah, you stand in the high ground with those ones. They're classics. But what about the Imperial March? Well, I wasn't sure if that was like a specific character because you hear it with Vader. Yeah. But you know, it, they call it the Imperial March, not the mm. Vader March. So this is deep and semantic now, mm. isn't it? I like, did what? think of like Luke has a theme. Yes. Leia has a theme. I like those. Yes. Yoda, but, well, Yoda has a, uh, a cracker theme. Yeah, mm. uh, the Imperial March is Darth Vader's I think, theme. I think it's, the, it's a belter. Yeah, okay. it is a belter. All right, then, I think we'll count it. Yeah, Why not? Enough. Um, the, the the motif, if you want to get all highfalutin, Ooh. was it kind of emerged as a as a way of instantly recognizing the character and the mood. Uh-huh. So it was yes. an important part of the the mm. character building. It's a, so, a Wagnerian concept, I think you'll find. Oh my yeah. lord, so. this has got a <laughs> little late night radio three all of a sudden. Google that on suits.com. <laughs> Hence, Ennio Morricone's themes in mm-hmm. in all the spaghetti westerns, oh, but yeah. especially yeah. once upon a time in the west. Harmonica. Harmonica. Oh, I love so Cheyenne. Good. I love the Jason Robards theme. Yeah, it's so perfect good. for that character. And if you think about taking the theme away from the character, it strips him of quite a lot of his kind of, you know, it, it brings a little bit of like comic clownishness to it, which I think it needs because he's actually quite a serious, he has quite a serious journey in that film. Mm. Um, but mine is Jerry Goldsmith's Patton theme. Okay, go for it. Which I love. Um, the only issue is that it sounds almost identical to the music <laughs> from Police Academy. So I want you to tell me which one is which. This is piece one. Hi, so that's right. Patton. That's part one. That's Patton. No. Yeah. Is that Patton? Hold on. No. Hold on. Sounded like yet. Police Academy. Get another go. Okay. That's right, Patton. That's Patton. First oh, one was Police Academy. Very okay. good. Yeah. Very right. good. You're correct. Um, but they are remarkably similar. Um, and Axel F by uh, Harold Oh, Ford of course, yes. Of course, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, speaking of great character themes, uh, <laughs> great character themes from Police Academy, the <laughs> horrendous running gag where the two cops keep going to the, the gay bar, the, the Blue, Blue Oyster, Oyster. And every time they go in, the music's like... <laughs> That's that's always stuck in my head. Um, <laughs> well, that's great. Um, and who doesn't love? I mean, yeah, Superman gets his own theme. Uh, Planet of the Krypton's got a great theme in Superman the movie, mm-hmm. but I love the theme that accompanies Ned Beatty's Otis in Superman. Which mm. I'm okay, I'm going, mm. it goes, it goes, it goes a little something like this. <laughs> Yes. Chris actually brought in a trumpet just to play that. He learned to play the trumpet just to just to give you that. Carl and Ellie's theme it up. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's actually, I mean, it's called Married Life, mm. so I don't know that we can really call it their no specific I, character theme. I'm going to anyway. Okay, fine. It's kind of tricky because you know a lot of the the big major themes are kind of the film themes. It's like is the Halloween theme Michael Myers theme, mm. or is it? Or is it the the sort of more somber? And Harry Potter's theme is actually Hedwig's theme, the one oh. we think do 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 do. Yeah, that's that's called Hedwig's theme. Yeah, um, it seems odd that the owl gets the best music, but there you go. Mm. Oh, and uh, yeah, always on a horror movie trip here, but uh, Jason Voorhees does have a cracking theme. That sort of mm. it's very very moody. Cha cha cha. Well, if we're talking cha-cha. about horror movie characters, then Ooh. you know Bruce in Jaws. 
It's Bruce. <laughs> Bruce is here. There's no business like shark business. <laughs> right. Okay. Now we've mangled that question beyond all recognition. Uh, once again, do write in if you think we've missed out any of the great character themes. Uh, I thought those answers were very good. So if you do, you know, write in that you're just a nitpicking Nelly. But please do write in to us. What? No. They work right in. You can improve everything. (laughs) Improve us. Please improve us. Uh, We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. You can email us podcast at empireonline.com and you can Facebook us as well. We are Empire Magazine on the Facebooks. Uh, Quick reminder early in the pod, uh, in case people don't stick around for the end, uh, that our Daredevil Spoiler Special Podcast is out now featuring Charlie Cox. Uh, It's very good. And our Avengers Age of Ultron spoiler special featuring Joss Whedon and Paul Bettany uh, will be up on Monday, May 4th, Bank Holiday Weekend over here in the UK. It may be up earlier. We may put it up Friday, Saturday, maybe. So keep them peeled on that one. Uh, oh, and when you're listening to the Age of Ultron podcast, listen for something a little extra at the end with Helen and myself uh, because we came back into the pod booth after the main recording session to record some new thoughts in the movie after I saw it for the <coughs> time and Helen saw it for the <coughs> time uh, we had some extra thoughts so think of that as our very own post credit sting if you will <laughs> uh, on that movie was, okay. was your tuberculosis looked at <laughs> it's really bad it's really bad guys we're going to segue smoothly into movie news now uh, a couple of people have demanded that we react to the Star Wars, The Force Awakens second teaser, and the Batman vs. Superman trailer that we completely forgot to mention on last week's show because they came out so early in the news cycle that we forgot about them, and last week had lots of news. But shall we shall we very briefly cover that off? Let's start with Star Wars reactions. Love that. Hooray. Brilliant. Uh, Batman vs. Superman, colon, yeah. Dawn of Justice. Don't I mean, I mean it, was, it was certainly dark and gloomy and raining um so you couldn't see anything i hope the weather will improve for them uh i i wonder batman's miserable all the time that's it you know why does it always rain on him that's what i want to know um because my parents died when i was 17 that's that was yeah uh, very top big fan of travis (laughs) but i mean I'm I'm hoping for the best with that film. There've been lots of stories recently that you know, DC is still not quite sure what it's doing with its its shared universe, and lots of stories about different scripts running around for Wonder Woman and for Aquaman, and mm. nobody quite knowing what exactly they're going to do with those with those films with those characters. But presumably, somebody's going to take the reins and take over. Um, presumably Zack Snyder is going to have a say in some of this and certainly is going to set the stage for all of it in Batman v Superman colon Dawn of Justice so we're just kind of I'm just kind of hoping for the best but the the teaser didn't 100% blow me away I think it's fair to say but I'm still just hoping that it will it will do so in future I like I did like the the idea that they're kind of tying it into sort of real world paranoia politics and and all of these kind of talking heads on the TV discussing what Superman means for the real world, which I think is quite clever because I think the idea that everybody would very calmly accept him, which is essentially what we used to see in the Christopher Reeves movies, yeah, not actually that realistic. It would cause a bit of a crisis of faith and... Geopolitical crisis. Like, who does he belong to? Who does he fight for? Well, that's, I think, what Watchmen did quite well. Yeah. You know, uh, Dr. Dr. Manhattan is the ultimate nuclear deterrent 
and he lives in the US, so what does that mean for the balance of power? Mm. Um, so I thought that angle was very interesting. So hopefully that they can make something really clever out of this. Just to play devil's advocate. Sure. Don't you want your Superman to be bright and breezy and... Yeah, but that doesn't mean... Maybelline. In the same way that I think the reason that Captain America the Winter Soldier works so well is because mm. you've got a really good man in a really difficult situation, you could theoretically do that with Superman. Okay. You could have Superman himself, if he was clear on what he does, which I don't think he was in Man of Steel, but if he is clear on who he is, what he wants, and what his aims are, then you can put him into any situation, and that will be compelling, even if the situation is very difficult. I think the reason Captain America Winter Soldier works so well is because the writers realised what they wanted to do with it very early. They had this idea of doing a 70s conspiracy thriller, and, and they fitted everything into that really nicely. Yeah. There doesn't seem to be any clear notion with this yet but that's still to, that's I mean, still yes. to emerge so I there's agree. still time yeah. still haven't finished there is still it yet. time I mean when we talked to um, the, the the people behind Man of Steel last time it's clear that they had actually put a lot of thought into the the kind of the themes and the, and stuff that they were talking mm-hmm. about we did those spoiler mm-hmm. specials yep. if you guys haven't listened to them I genuinely recommend them and even if you didn't love the, spe- the, the film because you know they had put a lot of stuff of thought into these themes and a lot of mm-hmm consideration into that and and hopefully this time they've put the same amount of thought in but it'll come over even better that's the hope i mean the 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 feeling has always been from the moment batman versus superman sorry batman v superman colon dawn of justice was announced that it was a film that was kind of scrambling from the off they were very much in the back foot there's a feeling it may however true it may be that batman was a very late addition to that film and Mm. it was a man of steel sequel and and then it became, oh, hang on, we can put everyone else in here and then we'll start our universe and we'll get off with a big start with the two heavy hitters. And, yeah. Uh, and they kind of, there's a feeling that that's the way they're going with the rest of the universe. There's no singular vision. This is all based off a Hollywood Reporter. There's a Hollywood Reporter article which quotes a lot of inside sources uh, basically saying that there's the, the, the methodology is to get a lot of screenwriters competing, um, which screenwriters don't like. They don't like that idea. They don't like that approach. But yeah, hey ho, we'll we'll see what happens. Suicide Squad is shaping up to be tremendous. I think so. That's that's good news. Did we discuss the Joker? It happened after we uh, we went live last week. So let's discuss Jared Leto's Joker, uh, which uh, David Ayer, the director of Suicide Squad, uh, tweeted a picture last week of Jared Leto with. Uh, if you haven't seen this, I don't know where you've been, but tattoos all over his body, his naked torso. Um, <laughs> so he has like. <laughs> he's an incredibly literal joker. He has ha 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 written all over his body and he has, you know, mom and love and hat. And uh, <laughs> I think, and he has, and this is the one that's attracted most criticism. I like the look. I thought it was interesting. You, you have to do something new and mm-hmm. different that we haven't necessarily seen before with this joker. You can't just rehash uh, Nicholson or Ledger. Uh, but he has damaged written on the middle of his forehead, which means that this is not a joker who like subtext very much. <laughs> I, I suspect the backlash to the damage thing in particular has been so over the top that I imagine they probably won't go with that in the finished film. But we'll, well see. The, the, there's been a, a little bit of a, a move away from that picture since it came out, hasn't there? There's been a sort of, oh, that's not necessarily the finished look. Kind yeah. Of, uh, and, and some of the on-set photos don't appear to show him looking quite the same as that yeah. as that image. So it's, a, it's an interesting uh, move, if that is indeed not his look, but it certainly has become uh, extremely memeable, I think it's fair to say. It did pretty much stop Twitter on Saturday morning, didn't it? <laughs> it was like, wow, every single person's tweets had a picture of the Joker in it. It was like watching 
I don't know. It's like the world's scariest playing cards kind of and <laughs> scrolling. But uh, is there not a sense that he will be progressing to that look oh, during so. the movie? That it'll be a little bit like Daredevil in the sense that he... I, no, he may... I think he's fully formed by the time we... Is that right? We could I, see yeah. Harley Quinn... We could see Harley Quinn whimsically tattooing him with ha-ha-ha. Mm. Um, I, could, I could imagine her doing that. Did you tweet something about who'd be brave enough to spend hours inking the Joker in a professional... Yeah. It wasn't me, but yeah, it's a, it's it's a like, valid question. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe we'll see that. Maybe they were all done by, by himself in a mirror. Yeah. In two mirrors to avoid mirror writing. So, so Mr. Joker, just to get this absolutely straight, how do you spell ha 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 Just, just to be clear. Okay, it's ten has. Brilliant, I got it. Uh, and damaged, which I keep reading is damaged. I don't know why, but it just and the people are slagging off the font as well. Which I, it's something I love. It. The Joker would never go for a cursive. It's not. It's not damages, is it? It's not like. Do you want the Good Wife or damages? <laughs> uh, I've been watching both. the Good Wife. Actually, I'd go for that. Good say. Wife. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think? Otherwise, otherwise, he hasn't got the face makeup, but presumably that will happen at some mm. point because the the idea apparently is that he's fully formed. He's in Arkham Asylum sure. at the beginning of the film, so Batman's already caught him and stuck him away. I think he looks interesting. I think Leto's a good shout for that role. He does look completely different to to the, the ones we've had before. He does look like the Joker. Like you look at that picture, and and even with all the crazy tattoos and mm-hmm. the grill and everything, you, you kind of say, oh, that that looks like the Joker in a weird way. In that yeah. there have been many different iterations of him in the comics, and and somehow yeah. certain things ring true, and that did look like him to me. He looks like a man who's been forced to listen to Thirty Seconds of Mars on loop <laughs> for twenty four hours. That would make anyone write damaged in the middle of their head, I think, to be honest. <laughs> Great stuff. Fingers crossed. Great stuff. Uh, let's move on from comic book movie news to um, comic book movie news. Uh, Kingsman has hit $400 million worldwide, uh, and now Fox have officially announced that they will be developing a sequel. Um, interesting. Fun. See where it could go. Interesting. Matthew Vaughan's obviously been semi-linked with the Flash Gordon film, so question is whether he'll do a... He'll do a kick-ass two on this one and just step away from the directing gig or come back for another go. But he did seem to, when he was on the Spoiler podcast, seem to be very enamoured with the idea of doing another one himself. Yeah, my feeling is this is more of his baby than kick-ass was. Yes, absolutely. And this is, um, uh, you know, so, whether they're, in, they're, they're developing it. I don't think he's in a position to go and shoot it now. So mm-hmm. he might do something first, whether it's Flash Gordon or not, I don't know. How long, realistically, would they want to wait to make another one of these? I say the window's three years in these things, isn't it? Really? Anything outside that, you have to kind of remind people of the concept. Three years, three to four years, maybe. Mm. But we'll see. But also, there's lots of questions um, about who might come back and in which form and what mm. the story could be. I mean, Fawn has talked about he wants to include American Kingsman, which uh, is an interesting idea. He wants big names to play the, the American Kingsman. Who's the American Colin Firth? Well, and. Stanley Tucci? He said. Clooney and people like that, but whether wow. or not that would work out, I don't Ambitious. know. Ambitious, yeah. But you, the, you never know. The point was that they were sort of quintessentially English. Yeah, that's what I thought. But they are meant to be in the comics. They're an international group, aren't they? The Kingsmen, aren't they? Am I, I rem- misremembering that? Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. I can't remember. But certainly, yeah, it, it seems like a very British organisation. So I don't know how Americans would, would fit into that. But uh, uh, Mark Strong's Merlin would be going undergoing a, a makeover and a uh, almost complete personality change, which, which could be fun. Um, camping it up. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, so that that could be quite that could be quite fun. 
<laughs> that could be quite fun. Um, all right, so let's move on. Uh, this is the interesting news. This is kind of confirmation this week that the much ballyhooed 21 Jump Street meets Men in Black combination movie at Sony, which is really, really desperate for a big franchise that it can spin off into a universe uh, with Ghostbusters and Spider-Man and, and now this, uh, might actually be happening. And there might also be a female spin-off centric 21 Jump Street sequel a la Paul Feig's female Ghostbusters. Yeah. Mm. The Men in Black Jump Street franchise idea is such a bananas concept that... It's clean and rad and powerful, according to Jonah Hill's well, email. Well, to be honest, it's mm. such a... Let me finish. It's such a bananas concept yeah. that if it was anybody but Phil Lord and Chris Miller, I think I'd be screaming and running. And because it is them, I'm like, yeah, all right, let's see where this is going. That's from somebody who watched Clyde with a chance of meatballs again at the weekend because, <laughs> hey, why not? The female-focused 21 Jump Street, I, I mean, I'm, I'm never going to, you know... I'm never going to reject female-focused films because there aren't enough. 13% of Hollywood leads are women, etc. But do we need to choose a side with every film? Can we not just have... Like, instead of having boys' schools and girls' schools, can we not go co-ed here? It does... It whiffs a little bit of... Yeah, well, there's that. I mean, are we talking about a film in which Emma Stone and Rebel Wilson team up and get get instructed by shouty Queen Latifah to go to high school. I mean, is it I a mean, retread? I, I, I don't know. It, it wasn't an original idea in the first place, obviously. So it does get a bit daft. I think you're right. Sony are very desperate at the moment to to get something up and running. Um, and they've got Tom Rothman, who's fresh behind his desk, at the top of the, the organisation. So there's lots of things being kicked around, and I presume he wants to make his mark early on with some big decisions. I don't know why this would be one of them, but... Who knows? There's a lot left to be said. It's written by the screenwriters of Broad City, which is I, which I haven't seen, but I understand is really, really highly rated and well thought of. It's a kind of girls like New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen some clips yeah, online, and they yeah, were funny. I, again, yeah. I haven't seen it, but but yes. So so they're they're obviously well thought of. Don't know. It, it seems weird. It really seems weird, especially as the other franchise is still going, and you know, and the whole joke was that it was a bit meta in the first place. How, how much more meta can it get? Yeah, but it's not like this. You know, the 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 world of twenty one and twenty two Jump Street are, are so sacred that we can't accept something that <laughs> yes, they that bloody are, Chris. might get recruited by the MIB. I can kind of see it working. That's yeah, the, that's the, the weird thing. The it's MIB like, stuff, I'm totally on board with because it's so completely mental. <clears throat> um, but what do they call it? Twenty one Men in Black. Uh, men in Jump Black. Street men in, in Black. Black Jump Street crossover. I get. Yeah. I just don't know about this. The sort of, you know. This one. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a bit interesting, yeah. It's a bit interesting. It's <laughs> just about a bit interesting. Uh, also interesting uh, this week in sequel news, a lot of sequel news, as you might expect. Uh, Micah Monroe, formerly of this pod booth, uh, has joined a cast of Independence Day 2 as President uh, Whitmore's daughter. Uh, and this has caused a slight kerfuffle in the States, mm. this one. Uh, because Mae Whitman of Arrested Development fame and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World originated the role to indelible effect um, in Independence Aww. Day. And some people are, are going, well, hang on, why was Mae Whitman recast in a role of, frankly, I can't even remember existing in the first place? So oh, no, she a, was adorable. She was the dork. Yes. Dorks. A dorks. dorks. Dorkable. She, who could forget? I did. Who did she <laughs> play? I, I didn't realise it was her, though. She played the daughter. Yeah. She played the daughter. Yeah. Is Boomer coming back? 
the dog. The golden, the golden. <laughs> it's probably. 20 years, it's Phil. It's been I don't 20 wanna, years. I don't know how to break it to you, but no. CG, <laughs> the magic of CG, I don't know. Well, I, I, I understand why there's been a bit of a fraud. Anna Kendrick weighed in on Twitter quite fiercely about this one. Mm-hmm. The suggestion being that Mae Whitman isn't, isn't enough of a leading lady type and that they needed more of a to play this role. But she's just come off the back of her success, hasn't she? The Duff was very successful. Yeah. So, I don't know. It seems, it seems a lot of anger about something. I'm not really sure why they've done it. No one's really... Roland Emmerich hasn't come out and explained the decision. So, it might be worth just hanging in there until he does a bit of press and he says, we've done it because... Also, we've had um, M- Mike Monroe in this very pod booth recently mm. and she's very talented. We didn't discover that on the podcast, but obviously <laughs> in her films. And I think she's going to be a big star. So... I don't know. She's good too. She is great. But but my, my point is, if it's a role that you can't even identify with an actor and it's a role you don't even remember being in the film, then I'm not necessarily going to get up in arms about it being recast. It's not like they've That's, recast Jeff Goldblum's role, which is no. you know, Whoa, absolutely hey, hey, hey. identified I, with well, him. Um, I, no, I think the point is that there's a sense people feel like she's been, she's been cut because she's not enough she's not beautiful enough to be the leading blonde lady enough, blonde and i don't know yeah, yeah there's an aesthetic dimension to it but yeah i, I yeah who, who knows but for me it's about are you irrevocably linked with a role and i don't see it with this one i didn't even remember the character in the first place i remember I the character the, i didn't realize it was her the, but yeah. it, you know there is I something to be said for yeah if, if somebody if somebody did play the role and is still an actor mm. kind of why would you not and maybe there are reasons. Maybe she's committed to something that we don't know about yet, yeah. which means she can't do it. Um, so, maybe they but, but Michael Monroe, we like her. So, yeah, hey, okay. Well, let's hope for the best. Starts shooting soon in New Mexico, Independence Day two. This is a uh, obviously a sad note on which to end the news section. But uh, the great cinematographer Andrew Lesney, the guy who shot uh, a lot of Peter Jackson's movies, including both. Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit trilogies and whose last film was The Water Definer died this week of a heart attack at the age of 59. Yeah, very, very sad news indeed because frankly these days that's very young and his, his career was still going from sort of strength to strength. Um, so it's, it's, it's really upsetting news and it was very, very sudden. You know, it wasn't like it was uh, following a long illness or anything like that. So I think it, it's come as a bit of a shock to film fans everywhere. But he had done some absolutely beautiful work. If you think about Babe for a moment, even apart from his, his much better known work on Lord of the Rings, that is an utterly gorgeous film and it has that sort of that fairy tale kind of golden glow across the whole thing that just makes it kind of magical looking. And that's even, you know, aside from his actual stories about magic. He did things like I Am Legend as well. He did The Last Airbender. He did Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Um, gorgeous, gorgeous work. Um, tributes flooded in from, I think, everyone who knew him and worked with him. And uh, and yeah, it's a very sad day. And he was very very good at combining landscapes with visual effects, yeah. as a, as a, and you know, getting the lighting um, just right, just right yeah. for the for that. And I think obviously these days that's more and more important skill for a cinematographer to have. So I think it's a, it, yeah, he'll be much missed in the filmmaking community by people like Peter Jackson and mm. and uh, the other collaborators. Yeah, it's been a lot of uh, really heartfelt. Uh, Tributes to him on, on Twitter this week, Russell Crowe and Elijah Wood and Ian McKellen. And, um, Peter Jackson took to Facebook to say essentially he, you know, they considered each other to be brothers. And yeah, it's a really, really sad loss. The Water Definer and The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, uh, were his last two films. The Water Definer, as we discussed in this podcast a couple of weeks ago, is a beautifully shot film. Mm. 
uh, reminiscent of you know great cinematography of the David of David Lean movies. So it's uh, a fitting a fitting tribute in a way to Andrew Lesney who died aged fifty nine. Something else to discuss on the podcast this week on a slightly more upbeat note is the new issue of Empire. We have one here in the pod booth. It is Glorge, which is a combination of glorious and gorgeous. Uh, and there's a word that I'm standing by. It's fantastic. On the cover is a world exclusive, Jurassic world exclusive, if you will. Oh, I see what you did there. Oh, yeah. I don't just throw this shit together, Helen. Well, um, you do. I did. Yeah, that was completely blundered into that one. Uh, this is uh, on the cover. It's a. It's a. How would you describe this? It's a. It's a. It's a weird cover. It has the. Um, that's not the right word, is it? It's, it's uh, a weird. Cover. It's a weird cover. Uh, buy it now, folks. It's a, <laughs> Please it's a, buy it. It's a slashed cover. It's a slashed cover. Yeah, there are four claw marks in the cover. You pull back the cover to reveal another cover, and there we see the Indominus Rex, the bad guy of Jurassic World, revealed in all its glory for the first time. Properly, it's been seen in the trailers, bits and pieces, but this is it on the cover. Each the copy Rex. has been individually hand claw slashed <laughs> by the office, by the office, the office raptor, the yeah. office raptor that yeah. we brought back from the south. Um, people are going, why are there four claw marks? Because the Indominus Rex is a genetically engineered dinosaur and has four claws. Well, although I'm looking at the claws here in the picture, yeah. just inside the cover, so you've got three claws pointing one way and a, and a sort of a, an opposable claw, yes, pointing the other way, which which doesn't actually fit these claw marks on the cover. It's 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 technically correct, Helen. I think you'll find. Okay. I think if you know, if an Indominus Rex were to come in here right now. Yeah, and slash us. There would be four well, claw I mean, marks down the. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be counting how many claw marks you had carved into your yeah. chest. That's all. Yeah, I think you'll find. Look, there's only three. <coughs> what else is in uh, the magazine, you guys? Well, I'm not finished on about the cover, Phil. No, it's good it's because good. It's, it's it's a hell of a cover. It was worked on. It pro, You know, we worked. We worked diligently with Colin Trevor, the director of Jurassic World, uh, to, to you know get this image. Just right, so it's uh, it's fantastic. And what else is in it? I can't even remember what else is in it. There's more world exclusives. More amazing stuff. There is uh, Tomorrowland is in it. Yep. Uh, I wrote that, so apologies cool. in advance. <laughs> uh, there's an Anna Kendrick profile. I wrote that, so apologies. Yeah. Um, there is uh, the women of Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, so that's uh, neither of us wrote that. So. Fierce lineup. Yeah, we don't need to apologise for that one. Whoever wrote it can apologise. Fierce. <laughs> I haven't heard... Oh my God, that's a Tyra Banks word if ever there no, was but one, it, it is. Yeah. Li- they are literally fierce, like yeah. in the proper sense, not just the Tyra Banks sense, yes. but also that sense. Yes. Uh, what else do we have? We have the report from the, the Empire Awards, the Jameson Empire Awards in March. Um, Jameson. Whichever. Uh, we have... <laughs> 40 things you never knew about Jaws. Now there is a challenge for you. Did you know any shark of shark was things? called Bruce. What? Um, it was a not a real shark. Um, no. There's no business Robert Shaw like shark business. Didn't die uh, during the making of the film. I thought they bit them in two. Apparently not. Oh. Yeah. Gosh. The shark did his own music. <laughs> and also um, a, a piece on the Magnificent Ambersons. Yes. Uh, Orson Welles' great missing film. Absolutely. And the people who are trying to find it. Uh, we also have uh, world exclusives uh, from Brian Singer and Simon Kimberg, who gave us some lovely X-Men Apocalypse concept art that movie started shooting this week, as did Captain America Civil War, in fact. And we also have uh, so that's some great stuff, some really in, really fa- fascinating insights into that movie. We also have Chris McQuarrie talking us through Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Uh, the pint of milk this month is Maisie Williams. Thank you very much for the following, which is out in cinemas right now. Uh, and we have set visits from the likes of Magic Mike, 
XXL. We also have set fitters from the likes of Trainwreck, Magic Mike, XXL, and the first look at Daniel Radcliffe and James McAvoy. Uh, technically the second one, because we did the first look back in issue 300, uh, uh, in Victor Frankenstein, as, as Victor Frankenstein and Igor, in fact. Plus, loads of movie news and reviews and other features and great writing and pictures, and sometimes the words and the pictures actually match and it's all good. And we recommend very, very strongly that you buy it, because I like to be able to eat. And um, please help me. £3.99 in all good and evil news agents. Is it true that if you open the back cover, you get hit in the face by a stegosaurus tail? It's not true, Phil. Oh. I was misinformed. <laughs> <laughs> but people should probably buy it and try it to find out. One. Oh, oh, but there just... is a crossword. There is a crossword. Uh, and Mark Strong is this month's movie mastermind. Uh, and he scores... <clears throat> oh, I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say. But also the, uh, the Jurassic World feature itself is fantastic. Nick was on set of the movie in New Orleans and spoke to Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard and Colin Trevorrow and B.D. Wong who's returning as uh, Dr. Henry Wu in this one. Um, he's <laughs> he, spoke to, he spoke to loads of people. He spoke to Frank Marshall. He was on set with the Velociraptor. He was in the movie. Nick's in the movie. <laughs> um, we think he might be in the movie. He plays, <laughs> he plays uh, someone called Edmund. So you can read about Nick's adventures as an extra in Jurassic World, uh, along with stuff about the film itself. And it's really, really, really quite good indeed. Uh, Jessica Chastain, Superman, Liam Neeson, it's all there. What an issue. What an issue. Right. Sold? Done? Have I vlogged it enough? Yes. Let's move on. All right, let's move on. Uh, time now for this week's guest, a lady who in an incredibly short space of time has become one of our greatest actresses, and dare I say it, an icon? Dare I say it? No. I dare not say it. Okay, she's Carrie Mulligan, uh, who shot to fame with an education and has only enhanced her reputation over the last few years as, say, the new Julie Christie, with cracking and tastefully chosen turns in the likes of Never Let Me Go, The Great Gatsby, and now this week's Far From The Madding Crowd, in which she follows in Christie's footsteps by playing Bathsheba. Bathsheba? Bathsheba. Bathsheba in the Thomas Finterberg Thomas Hardy adaptation, which is a whole lot of Thomases. We sent Phil along to speak to her recently. Enjoy. Kerry Mulligan, welcome to the Empire Podcast. Thanks. I appreciate you taking time to chat to us about Far From The Madding Crowd. Yeah. My first question to you is, how do I get the word madding into conversation? Madding? Yeah, how would I want to use that word? I just don't know how to. Any suggestions? Such a good point. You know, the Americans have been calling it Far From The Maddening Crowd. The Maddening Crowd. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, after the director, John Madden. Yeah, exactly. After John Madden himself. Um, Madding. Madding. Yeah, that's a challenge, isn't it? Just a general, just a, any form of kind of ga- assembly of people yeah. a little disorganised or a yeah. little kind of rambunctious. Come on, we're late to go to the madding. A madding? There's a madding happening. A madding, a madding we shall go. There's a madding happening at the town hall. Yes. No, it doesn't work, what, does it? Don't use the word town hall that often in conversation. <laughs> I guess. I don't know what town hall I'm even thinking of. Well, I think, I, I'm, I think you've put me on the right track. I'm going to try it later today. Um, you play... Now, pronunciation. I, I knew the character, obviously. I didn't know how to pronounce it until the film. Well, you can make your take your pick, I think, because it's... I think the Julie Christie version say Bath, Bathsheba, and we say Bathsheba, just to be contrary. I think I prefer your version. Thanks. It's kind of... It's sort of antique in a way but yeah. it's a very modern character and Bathsheba like Bathsheba yeah 
Are people coming up and saying, is this anything to do with Katniss Everdeen? Or assuming you're some sort of spin-off of the Hunger Yeah, which Games? one came first? Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm sure we will get a bit of that. Yeah, Bathsheba, we had to make a... We had to be very clear every day to remind people to call her because lots of characters in the film use her name. And so we had to keep on reminding people not to say Bathsheba so we didn't have a lot of... Oh, the cunts. Yeah. yeah. It'd be annoying to have to do ADR and get people just to pronounce one word. You know, when you do a film with sheep, there's a lot of ADR anyway. I was going to ask you about that because I think when I heard that Thomas Vinterberg, the man who was obviously the, the, the first person to make a dogma film yeah. and, and establish the rules of chastity with Lars von Trier yeah. in Denmark, made Festen, which is one of, I think, one of the best films ever made almost. Yeah. Um, and I was interested in, well, first of all, you know, <laughs> I can't believe the sheep had to do ADR. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, obviously he's not, this isn't a dogma film in any way. And yeah. He's moved on a lot, a lot since then. But is there any kind of yeah, semblance of that? And how would it not, manifest for you? It's one of the most sort of relaxed sets I've been on in that you don't feel, you know, and particularly for a costume drama, you're kind of just, you know, Charlotta was the DP. She shot The Hunt as well, which is a brilliant film. Um, and it's handheld and, you know, you rehearse a scene and then you pretty much do what you want you know they liked whatever set you're in so that you can move anywhere and um and we were outside you know we were outside for 70 percent of the film so uh there was a real freedom to it and I guess you know it's funny when you watch the film it's so beautiful you don't really think you think gosh there must have been an awful lot that went into that and there was but when you're on set you just felt like they just were thinking about you and what you were doing as actors so uh I think there was a definitely a kind of freedom and a something kind of, you know, the way that Thomas works, very kind of relaxed. It is a beautiful looking film. I mean, we were looking at the big version of the poster, which is one of the images of the year so far of, yeah. of, of you. It's weird. It looked like that in real life. Yeah, I was, was going to so, ask. So we walked down this sort of... We're just to put it into context for listeners because this isn't very oh, audio friendly. But <laughs> we're in a wood. We're looking you're at this thing. Wood. We're not going to describe it. No, you were in a misty wood in, and in you're in an embrace, yeah. a romantic embrace yeah. with Tom Surridge. And in Scarlet. In Scarlet, and yeah. it's very striking. The colours are very, yeah. are very striking. Yeah, I, and uh, it was an it was an amazing setting. And we walked down into it, in and it was sort of down a quite a steep hill, and it looked as extraordinary as it does on the post. Now it was really amazing. Any squirrel problems? No squirrel issues down there. Bathroom issues though. Bathroom is very oh, far away. How far was the bathroom? Too far. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Especially should, in the for people that don't know the book uh, or, or the John Schlesinger film or haven't seen this film yet, Bathsheba, is, is, she's a very modern woman, isn't she, in yeah. many ways? Because she, she kind of, she, she, she's a, she comes into some money and some property um, and she's sort of expected to marry the first person. Yeah. And, and there's three men in her life. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted, I mean, you know, you, you wrote to Alastair Julian Fellows, didn't you, when you were coming up? And he yeah. suggested that you marry a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> I just wondered if you've sent him a copy of the book and said, I know. no, look. Yeah, look, there's so many options. Don't try acting. Try try settling down and marrying yeah. a man. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. It's a, it's a, it's, she gets an offer of marriage before she even has anything as well. Um, but I loved that, you know, because I think I'd been nervous of costume dramas. I've been kind of staying away from them I mean this kind of British you know Victorian literature kind of thing I did it a lot when I was starting out and I was aware that at a certain point you become a British actress who just is in British films wears corsets and I thought that would limit me in mm. terms of getting to do other stuff particularly getting to play Americans and so I kind of stayed away from it for a while and then this came along and Thomas Vinterberg directing it was sort of you know it's too good to be true um, but yeah I think it, it, it does feel you know uh, 
it does feel sort of different in that respect. It doesn't feel like a sort of traditional costume drama. No, it doesn't. I mean, you've made some sort of subtle, subtle changes to, to the character a little bit from the book. She's a little softer, I think, more yeah. empathetic in some ways. I think, I think so. I think that's also in the edit, though, as well. Like, I think that's also in the way that Thomas is... Or is there a scene where you're just slaughtering There are so sheep. many scenes where I'm being a total bitch. No, it, 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 she is, I guess, in a way. I mean, I loved her, so I suppose it wasn't me trying to sort of sort of make her soft it was just that I had a real empathy for her and I enjoyed her so much I enjoyed her flaws and her contradictions and I sort of so I I loved playing those things but I guess she's not as I don't know I haven't seen other versions it was genuinely the only version I had in my head of who she was so the deleted scenes are going to be full of just bitch outs total nightmare throwing shit psycho episodes um is is it true that you saw the hunt and half an hour later, you went to meet Thomas to talk about this. Because I saw yeah. The Hunt, and half an hour later, I was in a dark room, just ruminating yeah. on my life. I did. I went to see it with a friend. I came out, and we both sort of stood in the street, staring and not talking. It's and then I was like, film, oh, but... shit, I've got to get in a car. And then I went and met him. And then the first words I spoke were to him. And then, you know, I think I'd sort of, in my head, I'd agreed to the whole thing by the end of the meeting. That was at the, the Savoy Bar, it was at the Savoy, right? yeah. So you've got to have a stiff and drink. I also like because you know he directed Feston, so I was like, and I didn't, I didn't Google him. I didn't know what he looked like, and I, you know, so I didn't know that he was this sort of young, you know, gorgeous Danish man. I thought he was sort of probably sort of wrinkly and old, and you know, so I was sort of walking in expecting something very different, and then I met him, and he was just sort of sitting there having a great time, you know, beer in hand, and you know, most gregarious, lovely, warm, outgoing. And, you know, you don't look at the at Feston and the Hunt and think that the guy who directed that is a real, you know, joyride. Uh, I was expecting someone quite dark and mysterious and scary and he was just like the nicest, most fun guy having a great time. Got to be honest, I saw him introduce The Hunt at the London Film Festival and I had exactly the same thought. I was yeah. like, he's so young. Like, wait, um, he's so young. But, but when you're meeting a director for the first time and you don't know what they look like, is it? I mean, it's a bit like a platonic date, blind date anyway. Yeah. You're going up to people and going, is that the man that directed Feston? Or yeah. is that the guy? Yeah, or? you've got to hope that they've seen you in something. Right. Yes, Generally, if they, they don't, find you're you. in a you're in a bad spot. Yeah, there are directors that would just sit there and let you just suffer yeah. as you went through the yeah. entire Savoy, asking everyone if they directed Feston. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're on a lot of buses. Today. I know. Are you getting Kit Harrington told us how when he was in Pompeii, he was getting his mates giving him abuse on text message about for this. being on a bus for being on bus posters. They were like, "You're fucking, you're fucking everywhere." Was one of them. <laughs> Do you get that kind of thing from people? Um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, my friend was like, "You're ruining my commute." Because I go down onto the tube and you're on the tube and then I go up and I get up on the bus and you're on the bus and just get out of my commute. So yeah, to a degree. But I'm living in New York at the moment, so I'm I'm getting a week's worth of abuse because I'm going back tomorrow. So I'm not getting it. You know, I'm sure I'll get text messages as it goes on. You're ruining my commute. I know. I was like, why? It's nice to see me. She's like, yeah, it's <laughs> nice to see you in the flesh, not your big stupid face on a poster. There's not a lot you can say. Sort of to to. I'm very sorry, yeah. Mabel, but. You know, what can you do? Can you do? Well, Deal taxi. with it. It won't be there for very long. <laughs> um, we should mention your other cast, cast, the other two leads, like the other two romantic, I hate the term romantic interest, but the other two men in the film, yeah. Matteo Schoenartz and, and uh, Michael Sheen, who yeah. are both really terrific in this film. But I kind of wanted to ask you about the lamb. Yeah, oh, the baby. Uh, because, lamb. my God, how did you say, I mean, you had you have a moment where you sort of, I guess you want to spend a few hours shooting with the lamb. Yeah. Is it a tough, a tough farewell? Oh, my goodness. It was incredibly distracting as well. It was really, it was a problem. I was obsessed with it's this so, baby lamb. It's very adorable. And, you know, you can, you suckle them. So you just put your finger in their mouth and they just suckle on your finger. 
And I could barely hear what Matthias was saying in that scene because I was just so into this lamb. Um, and then the, at the end of the scene, I kind of put the lamb down on the floor and run out. And they did have a shot where they sort of pan down to the lamb and the lamb is just sort of like, where's she gone? You know, sort of looking around aimlessly. And, oh, man, it's oh, so sweet. You can see the lamb was on the phone to its agent going, like, get yeah, me into the sequel. Yeah, what? What a three-picture deal. <laughs> yeah. um, you, were, you, you mentioned how when you were on The Great Gatsby, you didn't want to see the Mia Farrow yeah. version before then. And I wondered if you felt the same way about the Julie Christie version of Far From the Madding Crowd. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Have you seen either of them since then? No, neither of them. I imagine it's it's suffocating. As yeah, a, as it's just too. a bad vibe. You know, like, I hadn't seen neither of them. For Gatsby, it was, you know, Gatsby was ridiculous in terms of the expectation and the pressure that was on us. I guess because America's a bigger country, there are more people who are going to hate you, statistically, <laughs> if you fuck it up. So we were... Did you get haters? Did you get... Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I didn't read reviews for a long time on Gatsby and then I think one night caved in and read some and, you know, we had some nice reviews, we had some horrible reviews and, you know, I think, you know, that's par for the course. But it was, uh, yeah, that that kind of pressure was just kind of pretty full on. It feels less like this, less like that for this, even though this is a beloved book and the, and the Julie Christie version is also um, very beloved. But it doesn't help. It just messes you up, you mm. know. And, and particularly when it's two extraordinary actresses because I couldn't help but want to poach things from their performances if there were things that, you know, I would, which yeah. I would probably want to do. So, yeah, I think it's a bad thing. And now to do it would be, you know, difficult because I know what I've done and I would see them and think, oh, fuck, they did it better. And, you know, all that stuff that you go through. So uh, maybe in like 20 years I'll watch them. It was five years in last time. <laughs> in 20 years. Yeah. In 20 years' time, we'll have yeah. this conversation and yeah. you won't have seen them. No, you? and I'll say in 30 years from now. <laughs> but you are on the cover of both those books. I know. The first thing I do is probably send one to all my friends. And can look. <laughs> I'm on the cover of Penguin Get Classic. Get out of my bookcase. And I only got like a B at GCSE English, so eat, eat that. <laughs> yeah, deal with it. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty unusual kind of fringe. I don't know if it's a benefit or just a weird thing that comes with doing adaptations it's a weird thing that comes out you find yourself in bookshops which is do yeah. they send you a copy or do you have to buy your own they do you know what they're really good for because uh, you get asked a lot to you know auction stuff off a charity and i always get loads of them if i've done and get the whole cast to sign them and then you've got like an easy you know thing and you know and aunts and uncles like them as well i wanted to ask you going back to your first day on on a film set that would have been pride and prejudice yeah i think 2005 is that right yeah. Do you remember your first impressions of being on a film set? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I remember having no idea what was going on. Um, but we, I mean, Joe Wright had us all together for a month before we started filming. So we, by the time, as actors, all of us were very close and very happy. Um, but I still, I didn't know, you know, I remember we, my first scene was with was the whole family, me and Ros and Kieran, the whole, all the sisters, Brenda Bleth and Donald Sutherland and then Judy Dench and I'd met her she'd come to one day of rehearsals that I was at I'd met her you know like shaking her hand and passed out almost in the bathroom afterwards but you know like I, but I hadn't spent any time with her and, and that scene was with her and she was sort of marching into our house in the middle of the night and we were all in our pajamas and Joe Wright came up to me after like three takes and they were shooting on us and she was sort of barking at us and they were shooting the family he took me aside and he said, Kerry, you've got to do something with your face. You're just staring. 
And I was like, oh shit, you know, and like, I just guess I think I thought well, the camera's really far away. I, or I just had no idea. You know, I really had no idea. And I spent the entire summer basically copying Jenna Malone because, you know, Jenna knew what she was doing. Um, and so whatever Jenna did, I did, basically. And successfully, you did some stuff with your face that I did. I did really some, some face, yeah, face I did some stuff. face stuff. It took me a while, but yeah, I basically, you know, I did, basically did what Jenna did and then slowly got slightly more confident. Do you remember any Nicholas Winding Riffin pieces of direction that were akin to that? Because <laughs> I imagine he had a, a few <laughs> You do stuff with your face. Um, Nick, gosh, Nick's a trip. I mean, in every respect, um, no, I guess, you know, I was, Nick was incredibly, it's funny, the first time I met Nick. We, this is on Drive, obviously, just to. On Drive, yeah. First time I met Nick, we, we had a, a sort of shared dinner in Melbourne or something. We were both, he was there with uh, Bronson, I was there with an education, and we happened to be at the same dinner. And I really didn't like him <laughs> at all. And I was sort of, I can't remember why I think he was being funny. And uh, anyway, he didn't really talk to me. And then a couple of years later for Drive, I walked into his living room to meet him for the first time. And he turned around and said, oh, Carrie, you were so much fatter the last time we met. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? Who's this guy? You know, but I was obsessed with his films, completely obsessed with his films. And so sat down and we started talking. And it turns out he's just the best guy. Like he's the nicest, warmest. And I ended up living with him and his family in L.A. when we were filming. Um, so we became very, very good friends. Um, so, yeah, no, I think, you know, I was cripplingly nervous for the first week of Drive because Ryan was sort of, a little bit kind of in character um, and just very cool. And I was like, he hates me. He thinks I'm terrible. He doesn't want me here. Like, you know, I had this whole thing in my head where I was terrible casting and what am I doing here? So uh, Nick was, rather than being straight up and quite forceful, he was very kind of, I think he was just trying to keep me from having a nervous breakdown, but he was kind of very sweet and sensitive and lovely. And of course, Ryan was as well, but it just took me about five days to stop panicking because mm. it was Ryan Gosling. We had Ryan Gosling on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about the first meeting when they drove around. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's such a great Speed story. Wagon. Yeah. And, and the story that I that I thought was that that, that he'd stopped, he was, he was high on pseudoephedrine because he had a bad cold or something and he'd stopped talking and they were just sitting in the car in silence and then yeah. they put the music on and they had like an exchange. Yeah. A sort of of looks and it was then the movie was there and all the this. Movie but was apparently born. he hadn't spoken to him the entire night. No, Ryan no, said. that doesn't surprise me at all. So that's a, that's a bit of a nick. A nick. Yeah, he can be this the silent type. Yeah, good yeah. flatmate. Oh yeah, he's the best. Yeah. Did he show you his? He has like Thunderbirds toys. I don't know if they're in no. Denmark or in yeah, LA. they would have been in Denmark. Yeah, he's he a didn't... collector of oh really memorabilia. Yeah, he loves movie wow, toys. I didn't know that. He collects all the Thunderbirds. And yeah, his... also not surprising. Do you but... have any of those sorts of collection? Yeah. Things. No. Is it true you were a racing car driver when you were growing up? <laughs> no. I used to watch Formula One with my dad religiously. Oh, did you? Yeah, when I was growing up. Um, but no, I wasn't a sort of collector. I was I was a, like really into Michael Schumacher. and um, We grew up in Germany for a bit, so dad and I used to watch Formula One religiously every Sunday. But no, I wasn't. I never got into a car. Thank goodness. Because you didn't learn to drive until... Because I didn't love to drive until... Later. Well, I learned to drive for Never Let Me Go. Because Mark Romanek insisted that we need that we use an, uh, a manual car in that film, and then I learned to drive in a week, failed my test, and then we used an automatic car, and I felt incredibly cheated by the whole experience. <laughs> um, but yeah, then I learned to drive a little bit later on. Never got my license. It's the bane of my existence, really. You um, haven't you haven't got a license now? No, it's a problem. Come and do Empire driving lessons. Do you do Empire driving lessons? No, but we'll start. Okay. If, if, if you need. Yeah. To I, drive around. Seriously, Shasta I've Avenue. got to. It's ridiculous. At this point, I'm 30 in a month and I can't drive. Well, 
Before you see, work on that, before right? you see the Great Gatsbyans, <laughs> yeah. you need to learn to Somewhere drive. Drive through screening. Um, I have to wrap up in the not too distant future, but I have a question that you may hate, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Intro. You were very careful when an education came out and, and I know that you sat with your agent and your agent said to you, choose carefully, choose yeah. the things that you're really passionate about and you can't bear to not do. Yeah. Um, and you have chosen carefully since then. You haven't made any stinking films at all. Yeah. You're kind of a, uh, a, a clear IMDb page. But I wondered if what, what being in a franchise would mean for you now, because there are a lot of franchises out there. And, and as an adjunct to that, Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Star have Wars? you had any conversation? You don't have to say yes or no, but yeah. could you make a noise in answer to this question? Have you had any, when anyone approached you from Lucasfilm saying, what about something to do with Star Wars? I can make a no- negative noise and oh, really? I can say no. Okay. Um, but Star Wars, I think, is a different deal. Like Star Wars, I don't view in that kind of franchise. It's like Bond, I think. No. You know, they sort of stand a- a- apart from that stuff. Um, franchise stuff in general, like I, I love watching. I love, but I've never found a role that's been interesting or sort of attractive in that way yet. Um, and I also don't relish the idea of being incredibly well known for one part mm. um, or one look, or particularly if there's a sort of sequel kind of vibe, because you know it's hard enough already tricking people into thinking you're different people. But if you if they constantly see you as that same person, it's even harder. So, so if there was a superhero role on the table for you, you would it would need to be the one that you couldn't bear to see anyone else doing. I think so. Yeah, I think you know there's there's different kind of versions of that sort of thing, but. Uh, but yeah, on the whole, I think it's just sort of not wanting to. I think I, I I'm really enjoying the kind of films that I'm doing at the moment. Yes, I can. Well, I can imagine certainly with Far From the Madding Crowd why that would be the case because it's a great showcase and a really really good movie as well. Uh, last question: We also spoke to Bill Nye. I think in this very room actually. Oh, did you? A few. This was for the best, the second best exotic Marriott yeah. hotel, and he told us about how he is the. Um, I think he's the chairman of the Crystal Palace Football Club supporters club yes and he is known there as el presidente no way yes okay i'm gonna use that um so you should definitely call him el presidente when you see him but you've obviously been on stage with him in skylight yeah um on broadway has he got you along to crystal palace is he gonna get you to crystal palace no i don't talk about football with him he talks about football with matthew beard who plays his son in the play and they talk about football and i tune out of it but he is the Easiest way to wind up Bill is to pretend that you're about to tell him the results that you've read on your phone because he will he he has a rule that at work no one can talk about football results at all because he goes home and tries to watch the games in some format online. In New York, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got the whole setup. Like you know, he got them to to buy like eight different channels so that he could watch everything. But if you want to really piss him off. You get your phone out and go, oh, I'm on the sports page. Oh, man, you. And then start as if you're about to. Does he to... cover his ears and do the whole, he, no, 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 he, he just goes mental. Does like, he? he's like, oh, Carrie, I'm not even joking. I'm not even, you know, he's like really, really full on about it. So it's an easy way to wind him up. Are you the same way about the Formula One results? Oh, massively. Really? No, not anymore. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for Thank talking you. to us. Let's do a review of Far From The Madding Crowd. Hit it. Let's do it. Oh my goodness. You're you're both awful. So this is an adaptation of the Thomas Hardy novel. Uh, anyone who was forced through Thomas Hardy in school may remember him as, as I wasn't being... forced through him. Great. Well, Thanks no, for reviewing the film, Helen. Let's no, but move on. really, a little bit. Um, may remember him as being incredibly long-winded. Okay, I was going to say tedious. But... Tedious, yes. <laughs> okay. and, and, and let's face it, usually a downer at the end. But Far From the Madding Crowd is, I think, one of his 
best loved works, I think it's fair to say, like by people who don't have English degrees as well as those who do. Um, and it basically uh, focuses on Bathsheba Everdeen. And yes, Katniss was named after her, played by Carrie Mulligan, who's a kind of, um, she's a spirited filly in the parlance probably of the times in the sense that she uh, has the means to be financially independent mm-hmm. and essentially plans to be and has no wish to have some hus- husband bossing her around the problem of course being she lives in victorian times which means that you know that's the expectation of her especially as she's young and gorgeous and has no reason not to marry so uh she turns down the attentions of uh totally hunky sheep farmer <laughs> gabriel oak who's played by matthias schonartz and um and then he falls on hard times and uh-huh. finds himself going to work for her just as she gets prosperous. Meanwhile, she has two new suitors. There's the patently unsuitable Sergeant Troy, played by Tom Sturridge, um, who has has a very nice way with a uniform, but really nothing else to recommend him. And then Michael Sheen's uh, lonely Mr. Baldwood, who is um, kind of shy and retiring at first, but turns out to be a little bit less, um, a little bit of a stalker. Like, sort of a Victorian 19th century stalker. A little bit. Just a tiny bit around the edges. Anyway, um, so it's it's sort of charting her own path through these various uh, suitors and trying to find her own way and trying to be her own woman while also, you know, juggling everything that life throws at her. I think they've tried to position this as a bit of a f- kind of feminist story. And despite Mulligan's best efforts, I'm not quite sure that it is because it still has that 19th century feel to it. She can't overcome the fact that her society really doesn't want her to be independent. But at the same time, there's a really nice relationship between uh, Oak and Everdeen. Uh, They have a really nice, there's a really nice sense of them actually kind of growing together and growing to depend on one another, which I think it sets this apart from lots of quite shallow romances where they basically just see each other in uniform and go, oh my goodness, he's so dreamy. And I think that's that's really well done. Thomas Vinterberg shoots it all beautifully. It's, It's really beautifully put together. There's a little bit of a sense sometimes of kind of uh, rubbing away the, the novel's rough edges, I think it's fair to say. And they certainly kind of skim through quite a lot of years that are supposed to pass in quite a short space of time. It doesn't always give you the sense that actual time has actually passed, no matter how many montages of harvests they show mm. us. Um, but at the same time, it's so gorgeous that it's it's really hard to argue with. Um, and, and well acted, I should say, by that cast as well. So uh, we give it four stars, and I think that's about fair. There's some great scenes of sheep farming. There are, yes. Lots of sheep shearing. Mm-hmm. Sheep shearing and there's a sheep dip. And yep. There's a bit where the sheep all eat the wrong thing and they they, explode, they all they all kind of Blow up. swell up like furry space hoppers. And Matai <laughs> Shonuts has to kind of puncture them, which is fun if you're into uh, sheep husbandry. And who isn't? <laughs> exactly. I ask you. Um, I really enjoyed it. It is old-fashioned. It reminded me a little bit of you know what Spielberg was trying to do with War Horse, I think. Mm. You know, make it quite self-consciously old-fashioned. In this case, it did have a little bit of a you know a modern woman feel to it at the heart of it, and I thought that that Carrie Mulligan's very good. I think she's a talented actress, yeah. and I also thought Michael Sheen was fabulous in the role. Yeah. He brings so much to what could have been a subsidiary character, layers of depth and pain, and yeah, he was a bit stalkery, but I think it came from a place of loneliness and insecurity, and I think he's intrinsically well-meaning but complex, and he conveys all of that with you know not necessarily very much to work with all mm. the time, um, and. Uh, He's very, very good, and um, I enjoyed it. And you're right, I love Thomas Vinterberg. I think Festen is one of my favourite films, probably. I thought it would be. Phil. It's not one that you revisit regularly, <laughs> but it is a, it is an absolute masterpiece, I believe. And and it's good to see him back with with uh, the Hunt, obviously, which yes. is tougher than this. A lot. Uh, tougher. This is not a tough film. 
um, which is kind of nice. I was sitting there thinking, I'm glad it's not a tough film. I don't want to see more sheep run off cliffs. Mm. I've just, I want to see, you know, something that's a little bit glossy. That was fine for me. I feel like anybody who's having like pull dark withdrawal symptoms <laughs> yes. like is is totally going to love this like it couldn't be better timed for coming after that because that's been the uh, big water cooler conversation yeah. up and down the country the last what six six weeks um this is exactly what you need I mean, it's yes it's set like a hundred years later or something but and it's, it's the same stuff, it's, yeah. it's different people yeah. same dreaminess it's Are fine there scenes of of sweaty topless scything Sadly, there are smocks involved when the scythes come out, which is very upsetting indeed because the smocks are horrible. Um, but at the same time, it does have that feel about it. So you, okay. you, what you lack, what you lack in um, in Killy, you make up for in, in Philly. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Yes, kind of does. I didn't know what I was. It kind of does. <laughs> uh, four stars then for Far from the Madding Crowd, or should I say, four from the Madden crowd. Oh, no, I probably shouldn't say probably that. Um, let's move on then uh, to <laughs> to another film this week. Uh, this is a sequel to the film that made Gareth Edwards' name and reputation. Now look at him, he's doing Godzilla and Star Wars and all sorts of stuff. And uh, It was Monsters, of course, a film I absolutely adore. Uh, came out a few years ago. This sequel is called Monsters Dark Continent. Gareth Edwards is not the director, as you might expect. He's busy. Um, Tom Green takes over the reins in this one. No, not that Tom Green, not the Freddy Godfingered guy, although that would be an interesting sequel um and this is more of a war film isn't it phil cat correct it is this is monsters colon dark continent the dark continent in question isn't really continent it's kind of the it's kind of iraq in which we have we've moved forward from gareth edwards movie it's out of central america the the the, the, the scenario is the same the the infected zones have spread and then you've had global conflict has filled the void as the monsters are still doing their tentacly business in the background but they are very much in the background of this film. It doesn't do what Gareth Edwards did with the first film, which is set a road movie and a love story and a romance and human drama against a backdrop. They're more, they're, they're even further away this time than monsters. They're not really even in the film in a dramatic sense. They're very much mm. there, and there's visual fireworks to start with when you see how they, you know, how they deal with the sort of combatants that are going on around them. But really, at its heart, it's kind of a film about grunts doing battle with insurgents, which we've kind of seen. Um, nobody really talked about it very much at the time, but Generation Kill, the HBO show that followed up The Wire by David Simon's really, really good, uh, tackles all this stuff with so much more sophistication and, and so much more to say. This film, to me, has absolutely nothing whatsoever to say about anything. Um, <laughs> and I really did not enjoy it at all. I mean, I think... Um, I think it goes without saying that, that people have different views and film films are subjective. I think if you enjoy the 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 sort of the macho kind of testosterone combat stuff, you know, if you like the, the the sequences in the Hurt Locker, which are basically just gun battles and the tension, this has lots of that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's a very good role um, in this film from um, Johnny Harris, who plays a kind of not so sergeant. Wait, wait, hang on. I know, believe Johnny it or not. Johnny Harris, I know, not so sergeant. I know, but he gives great nuts so in this. <laughs> our, our sort of our sort of cipher conduit through this world is 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 Sam is uh, Sam Keeley who plays a a soldier who's probably the most the, he's a newbie to all this. He's a he's a, uh, basically going into combat for the first time. A lot of Humvees, a lot of shooting, a lot of blowing up. There's some aliens in the background. It all ends in something that's sort of vaguely akin to apocalypse now. Mm. Um to me, it felt like a student film that got way out of control 
and I really didn't like it at all. We've given it four stars. <laughs> so I would say that, but you know, one person's art is another person's blood. So, you know, uh, who, every, take, everyone has different views on stuff. I, for one, really did not like this film. I just felt it was hollow and noisy and I didn't see what it was trying to say. I don't think it was trying to say very much, to be honest. Um, but that said, if you like the combat stuff... <laughs> You know, there is there is a lot of that and um, uh, that, you know, the action sequences are well handled. And, you know, the monsters are there in the background. Mm -hmm. They occasionally interact with the dramatic, dramatis personae mm -hmm. and uh, those scenes are pretty good. Mm -hmm. But they aren't really, I think they really quite figured out how to weave them Shall into we? the story. Okay. Should we stop you there? Yeah. Before you... Yeah, no, no, Start I'm done. But I should say that our Kim liked it because reading his review, I've I've sort of mentally made a you know made a note to see it. He gave it four stars, um, and and you know loved. I'm just reading here, but the the snapshots of human behaviour in extreme circumstances. So I guess mm -hmm. it's kind of a war film essentially with just that little extra element for him anyway. Mm. So um, so yeah, I, we should say that the magazine liked it maybe more than Phil did. Just to make that clear to anyone. Who was confused? Yeah, agreed. We gave it. We gave it four stars. Phil did not give it four stars. <laughs> no, I gave it two stars. I'm giving Phil. I'm giving Phil three stars for that review. <laughs> it was very good, but uh, you know. Also out this week is the latest Jason Bloom high concept, low budget horror movie it's called Unfriended. It uh, largely takes place a single shot, quite tricksy. Uh, based around the idea of social media. Um, we gave it one three stars. We also have the prison drama We Are Monster, which we gave three stars to as well. And there's the uh, the documentary, the Sesame Street documentary, uh, I Am Big Bird, which is charming and ramshackle and uh, shows the uh, the life of the guy who is Big Bird in real life. Uh, three stars for that one as well. And Phil, uh, just very briefly, yeah. I believe that uh, Eight and a Half is re-released this week. Yes, it is, because I went to... The BFI just last night, and they had an ad. They had a, a promo for it. Okay. Yeah. So, so if you haven't seen Fellini's Eight and a Half, and that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by John Stewart, <gasps> the Daily Show Dreamy. host, who's branching out into directing with Rosewater, uh, in which Empire cameos. Yes, it does. It does. Three times. Uh, and Sarah Gayden, who's the star of A Royal Night Out as well, she'll be in the pod booth also. Uh, and do listen out once again for our Avengers: Age of Ultron spoiler special podcast which is out on Monday or possibly earlier. Until then, it is goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to help uh, Sean Connery with his dial-up. He's having such problems with it these days. I don't understand. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs>